Well, thank you, Howard, Hillary, and worship team for leading us in the songs of worship. And welcome to all of you who are visiting with us here this morning. It's good to have you here. And uh, for those of you who are coming back from UCs, we welcome you as well. Glad to have you home. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've just started our series in the book of Acts. And our goal in the study of the book of Acts is to understand why we as the church are here, who we are, what we're here for, what we're supposed to do. And so this morning, we find ourselves in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' church established. But before we get started, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful for you, for your loving kindness to us in giving us the church, in establishing the church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand more of why we're here, why it's so important for us to care about this history-making institution that you've given in the church. We pray that, Lord, you would help us to understand these things and help us to live in light of these things so that our primary goal, our primary concern is the advancement of the gospel for your glory and your glory alone. We pray, Lord, that you would establish your church and that you would make it all that you need it to be in order to bring yourself the highest praise and the highest glory. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. When we think about life, life is all about adjustments. When life changes for better or for worse, we have no choice but to adapt to our new situations. For example, when high school students graduate from high school and they're about to go into college, they quickly realize that they're not kids anymore that they have to be adults, that they have to adapt to their situation. Now, they might have dorm food provided for them, but later when they move to the apartments, no one's going to cook for you. No one's going to do your laundry. You have to do that yourself. And if you don't do that yourself, well, then you have to, I don't know, just sit there, I guess, right? If you don't adapt, you're in trouble. You might die. Another example would be married couples, right? When married couples, when they, have, when they welcome in their first child, life is a lot different. Life is different in general already when you get married. You, you see how, how sinful you are, how you have to die to self and consider someone else. But now, with the addition of a new, newborn, you have to consider a third person that you have to care for. And this, this third person can't really talk to you, can they? They cry every time they need something. And, um, yeah, they're, they're, they can't really do anything for themselves. You have to take care of them, right? So new realities in life change the way that you live your life. Uh, married couples, they can't, uh, when they welcome in their first child, they can't continue to live as just married couples. Right? And, they, and they definitely cannot live as single people anymore, right? Because everything's changed. And, that, and these life situations uh, that are true, it's very true about the church as well. Right? It's true of the early church and the church now. When reality changes, the church must change too. Last week, we saw how Jesus established the foundation of his church through his 12 apostles. And before he ascended into heaven, Jesus left his apostles with a distinct mission. You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. But this mission was predicated upon, dependent on, them going back to Jerusalem and waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be given to them. This morning, we're going to 
we're going to study three scenes. Three scenes which explain the significance of God's promise to the church and to her mission. The first scene that we're going to study is the promise fulfilled. The promise fulfilled. Now we see in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place. Following the calling of Matthias to join the 11 apostles, possibly 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, the day of Pentecost arrives, and the apostles are all together in one place. Now, a lot of you, when you think about the day of Pentecost, you immediately jump to this chapter, and you think about, well, Pentecost, that's the day when the church is established. And you're absolutely right. But there's a little bit more to that. We jump the gun just a little bit when we uh, immediately attribute Pentecost to the, the establishment of the church. Pentecost is an important feast day in the Jewish religious calendar. It's also known as the Feast of Weeks. It's a feast that happens 50 days after, after Passover, hence Pentecost, 50 days. So the purpose of Pentecost, it's found in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 34, 22, and 23. Exodus 34, 22, and 23. Moses, he gives the, he prescribes this feast of Pentecost as a celebration of the first fruits of the harvest, the ingathering of the grain, as it were. And this feast is important in the religious life of Israel because it recognizes that God himself is the one who provides for the needs of the nation. And the people celebrate it by offering a portion of the first fruits back up to God. Now, if you think about it, as an agricultural society, whenever you bring in the harvest, you don't know whether the rest of the harvest is about to come in. Right? Something could happen. A weather disaster could wipe out the rest of the crops. Someone could come into your field and steal the rest of your crops, leaving you with nothing. All this could happen, but yet God prescribes here for the Feast of Weeks, you give back a portion to God because you recognize, you understand, you have faith that God who is faithful to bring about the first part of the harvest, will bring the rest of it. And so this act of worship and thankfulness was a vital part of Israel's life. And it required for all the men, it was one of the three feasts where all the men of Israel had to come to Jerusalem to worship God because that is where all, that, that was what all of Israel was supposed to do. They were supposed to worship the Lord together. And because this was so significant, everyone was together now, we'll talk about this a little bit more, uh, but just file that away in your minds. Now, the apostles, they're all gathered here in one place. And what we see here from Luke is that suddenly, verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Even in the way that Luke records it, what happens next in the story is completely unexpected by the apostles because it happens suddenly, right? Suddenly it happens. And then they hear this noise from heaven, which means that it's supernatural in essence. And the main point is that this is all God's doing. All of this is God's doing. Now, when we look at Luke's description of the noise, it's, it's interesting here because he describes it as a violent, rushing wind. And the choice of word here for wind is actually really significant because normally we would expect to, to see the word pneuma for wind, right? Spirit, where we get the word spirit. We would expect that word, but we don't get that word. Rather, we get a very rare usage of the word wind, which goes back 
at least in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to Genesis 2, where God breathes life into man when he creates man. Right? He breathes that life, and that's that word for wind here. So you have a violent rushing wind, and it fills the whole house, just like when God's breath filled the man when he created, filled Adam when he created him. Luke is being very intentional here. He's trying to demonstrate that what God is doing in the church is special. This violent rushing wind that fills up the whole house where the apostles are sitting is a sign. But what is this sign? We're looking at what happens as a result of Christ's death and resurrection. You have new life, a new man, or in other words, a new creation. That's what happens. That's what God is doing in the church. It's a new creation. That's what he does through Christ, the new Adam. And so in addition to the noise of the violent rushing wind, there appeared to the apostles tongues as of fire distributing themselves as they rested on each one of them. This is really strange imagery if you think about it. Because we're not talking, if you remember Sunday school when you were a child, you flanagraph and you have the little pictures that depict what's going on in the story. Typically what you'll see is fire, just little, little fires above every apostle, kind of like hovering over them like a halo would. But that's not what we see here, right? It says tongues as of fire. The tongues looked like fire. So it's kind of weird because you just have the apostles sitting around and they have tongues on them. It's like, Ew, that's kind of gross. It's kind of unsanitary. Why would we have tongues on these apostles? And while this is strange imagery, there is a point to this imagery. Because the word for tongues can also be translated as languages. So the tongues, they represent in picture languages. And so what we have here as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection is not just a new man symbolically, but in actuality. In Genesis 11, God uses languages in order to divide a gathered group of people who are trying to rebel against him. He tells them that they're supposed to go to all ends of the earth and fill it. But they decide, no, we're going to stay here and we're going to build a tower to go up to the heavens. And God comes down, he laughs at them, and then he says, your tower is nothing. I will confuse you so you don't do any of this anymore. And he spreads them out. And so he divides them with the languages. But what we see here in Acts 2, and we're going to see this in the rest of the text as well, is that God, he unites these different languages together in one place in order to demonstrate we're reversing what happened at Babel. Acts 2 uses these different languages but he ga- they, and gathers them all in one place to show that we have a new humanity here. We have a new humanity. We're reversing Babel. This is anti-Babel. Notice in verse 4 that the apostles, they were filled up with the Holy Spirit. And this is similar to the way that when man was created from dust, God breathed life into man. They speak tongues as the Holy Spirit was giving them utterance. Right? These apostles, when they were sitting there and they were filled up with the Holy Spirit and they were speaking in different languages, they're not just sitting there giving, they're not just sitting there having casual conversations. Hey, Peter, how you doing? Look, I'm speaking German. Oh, hi, hi, James, I'm speaking Italian, right? It's not that. It was like, oh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? No, they're not talking about that. But what, they're, what it says here in, in verse four is that they were speaking with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What they're saying is completely controlled 
by the Holy Spirit. Not that it's dictation, but what they're saying is, what they're saying to one another is what the Holy Spirit is telling them to say. He's guiding their conversation, and he's telling them what they ought to do. Now, a quick note on this. Well, the presence of the gift of tongues in Acts 2 is often used here to to defend the modern charismatic movement where they're saying that speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift that still exists today. But the language that they refer to when they say that the gift of tongues is still present today is not what is seen here in Acts 2, but is a misunderstanding of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, where he's being sarcastic and saying, even if I were to speak in the tongue of angels, if I do not have love, I'm just useless. Right? But they take that, they misapply it, and they say, well, I'm speaking in the tongues of angels, and they speak utter nonsense, nothing but gibberish. But what we see here in verse 4, it provides some guardrails for us to understand what the biblical gifts of tongues are. They are real languages, discernible by, all, by people who speak these languages. And what is being spoken is being controlled by the Spirit. They're only speaking what the Spirit gives them. And so what is the ultimate purpose of this gift of tongues? Well, we'll see that shortly. But before we move on, the result of the filling of the Holy Spirit is more than tongues, but it can also be seen in the fact that the Spirit indwells each believer. This word for filled in verse 4, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a different word than the normal word for filled. It's a word that conveys this idea of permanence a full satisfaction of filling with the Holy Spirit. And what this means is that for the first time in all of human history, the worship of God doesn't have to be limited to Jerusalem. For the first time, because the Spirit dwells with you, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. Remember, there they are all in Jerusalem because of Pentecost. They are all there gathered together to worship God because that was what God prescribed. But now, for the first time, because the Holy Spirit is given, you don't have to do that anymore. The Holy Spirit dwells with you forever. Not only does this allow for us to know what his will is, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives us full assurance that our God is with us, that he'll never leave us, and that he cares for us. Right? You can have that assurance because he fills you permanently with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, that's not the case. In the Old Testament, what we saw was that the Holy Spirit only temporarily rested upon individuals, and then he went away after God's purposes was done. But now, it's different. The facts on the ground are different. Going back to verse 5, the sound that came from heaven was apparently so loud that it drew the attention of many people and they, they formed a crowd outside where the apostles were meeting. And you, what we see here is that Jews from every nation, they were hearing the apostles speaking in their native tongues. They, were, they heard the apostles speaking in their native tongues. This is astonishing to them as they recognize that these apostles, they're Galileans. They're Galileans. And Galileans, they are normally tradesmen. They're just fishermen. They don't necessarily have, they're not known for having a good education. And so 
when they see the apostles speaking in their native tongues, they're like, there's something off about that. Why are they speaking my language? They shouldn't know those languages at all. And yet, these apostles, they are speaking in the native tongues of all these Jewish visitors from all over the map. And we have a list here. We don't have time to go through that list, but they're speaking in tongues. And what are they saying? Well, in verse 11, it says here that the crowds, they heard the apostles speaking in their own tongues of the mighty deeds of God. These apostles, they weren't just having casual conversation, but they were telling of the mighty deeds of God. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is given here to the apostles so that they can speak in real languages while standing unified together to proclaim the mighty deeds of God to all these people. And this is a sign which, uh, this is a sign which, which purpose is to get them to ask a question. And they finally ask that right question, and it is, what does this mean? Or what does this mean that these Galileans are speaking in our language and they're proclaiming the mighty deeds of God? Now, some, they try to explain it by saying, ah, don't worry about them, they're just drunk. I don't know about you, but... Hearing a defense of them speaking in tongues that they don't know before because they're drunk is kind of uh, it's a silly answer, isn't it? It's woefully insufficient. Um, and, you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise that the apostles were waiting for in Jerusalem, it's, this is important for us to understand because the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us as a reminder, as a reminder that there's a new reality for every single believer due to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who are saved by Jesus Christ are new creations. They are a new humanity that is not divided between Jew and Gentile or wealthy or poor, but is united together in Christ. The gift of tongues was given as a demonstration to the world what God was doing in his church. He's doing a new work by creating a new humanity in Christ, uniting what was once divided into one new being, one new institution. And because of this, we have every single reason to have hope and to have joy going forward. God kept his promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He kept his promise in giving us his son. And because of that, because God fulfilled his promise, we have hope. We have joy. And this leads us to our second scene, which explains the significance of God's promise to the church, which is the promise explained. What's the significance about this promise? So we see the promise explained. Peter answers the question of what does the apostle speaking in tongues means with the following explanation. It says in verse 14 that he takes his stand with the 11. He raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. When Peter takes his stand, he's explaining, look, these guys aren't drunk because basically it's way too early even for drunk people to get drunk. For even alcoholics to get drunk, it's way too early. When, 
when they're t- saying the third hour of the day, they're not talking about 3 a.m. The Jewish clock starts at sunrise, which is about 6 a.m. Right? The third hour of the day is 9 a.m. So what Peter is saying is, look, they're not drunk because even for partiers, that's way too early to start drinking. Right? So it's something else. What is this? Right? What is this? He says, what, what this, uh, what is, what was, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It's not a fulfillment of what Joel was speaking of, but it is a part of what Joel was talking about. Now, I don't have time to show you the differences, but when you go to Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, you will see that there are differences from what Peter quotes and what is actually in Joel 2. There's a significance to that. Peter has a point in that. And what he's trying to show is that it's not the entire fulfillment of Joel 2, but what we see is only a part of Joel 2. But this is, a part, this is what it is. Right? It's a part. And so, verse 17 to 21, Peter says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now you can even tell, even in that reading, that not all of this has come to pass yet. Right? It's only a part. But what Peter is saying here is he's saying to the people who are observing him, he's saying, what you see in us right now is evidence that the latter days has begun. It's evidence that the latter days have begun. The latter days is a broad time period. We don't have time to cover it all, right? You can see it's a huge part of the timeline. But this is very simplified. But what you see here is that you have the victory and reign of Jesus Christ. It institutes the new covenant. And once the new covenant comes, we all live in new covenant realities. The fact that it's uh, what uh, Elder Jimmy was talking about, how we have a heart of flesh now rather than a heart of stone. But it also, the, the latter days also includes the day of the Lord, which means judgment is coming. But you also have a positive aspect of it where it's blessing. And then following that, you have the millennial kingdom, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, which leads us all the way up until the eternal state. But basically what Peter says is all of this is in view now, right? From the institution of the church, because we're in the latter days, all of this is in view. The future is in view. It's on the horizon. And because the latter days have begun, access to God's promises is now possible. The hope of sins forgiven in verse 21 is only possible because we are in the latter days. We can only be indwelt by the Holy Spirit because we're in the latter days. God draws attention to the apostles and the early church so that the men of Israel in Jerusalem can see that God has brought the latter days in because of Christ. And as a result, you need to pay attention to us. Remember, he's speaking to these men of Israel who are there. He's speaking to these Jewish people, and he's saying, you understand what the day of the Lord has. You understand the judgment that comes to the rest of the nations and to those who rebel against God. And if you want to be saved, 
If you don't want to be a part of the great and terrible day of the Lord where he kills everyone who rebels against him, then you must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You must join us in order to be saved because salvation is found in no other name but Christ alone. And that's his appeal to them. He continues on in verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus, sorry, Peter explains that Jesus was not handed over to be crucified because he deserved it, but because it was all according to God's predetermined plan. The word here for predetermined is the Greek word from which we derive our English word horizon. God's plan from the very beginning has always had the cross in view, has always had the crucifixion in view. The cross was necessary. It needed to happen in order to bring about the time period in which forgiveness of sin and the, and the privileges that come with the promise of the Holy Spirit can happen. No crucifixion, no, no death of Jesus Christ, no forgiveness. No forgiveness, no Holy Spirit. No confidence that God will deliver at all. And yet all this is also tied to the resurrection. Right? You cannot have hope of forgiveness of sins without resurrection as well. I mean, this is so significant that if you forget to include the resurrection in your gospel presentations, you basically fail the final exam when it comes to being a Christian. Right? Because if you forget the resurrection, you have no hope. You still have a dead Savior. He, he actually doesn't really save at all because he's dead. But no, because Christ rose from the dead, because it was impossible for him to be held in death's power, that's why you have hope. And that's why in verses 25 to 36, Peter, he elaborates more on the importance of the resurrection. And he shows through David's, through, uh, David's prophecy that even the resurrection has always been a part of God's plan. He planned for it to happen that this, the Christ, the Messiah, would die. But he also planned for it to happen that the Christ would rise from the dead. God will not allow his Holy One, Jesus, to undergo decay. Not just because Jesus is God and sin and death can never have power over him forever, but also because it's just a part of God's plan from the very beginning. Therefore, God raised him up from the dead and made the apostles witnesses of this glorious new reality that brings about the promise. So what do we do with Peter's sermon? Because right? normally we just read this and we're just like, oh, okay, that's nice. I don't know what to do with this. So how do we apply this to our lives? As witnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection, even though we're not eyewitnesses, we as the church need to recognize what we stand for in this world. We proclaim to one another and to the world that God has not left the scene, that he's not taking his hands off the wheel, but he is doing something new. And he's doing that through Christ. He is still in control. We as a church, we are one new humanity. 
a new humanity that finds our common bond in Christ. And just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're trying to overlook or erase different cultures and ethnicities in our midst by saying that we're one in Christ. So Christianity looks like this one standard thing. We exist together in order to proclaim to the world that the power of the gospel makes a difference by changing us at the very cores of our being so that what was once divided and spread out comes together again in order to demonstrate that God reigns and he saves. And you can see that, you can have confidence in that because he's brought us all together. You wanna know why we, don't ha- why we don't believe in tongues anymore? Because God already established that fact back in the early church. He used the gift of tongues early on to show that he was behind the salvation of all men by bringing them all together, by showing that we're all a one new humanity in Christ. But that ends now because he's already done that. He's already proved that. He's already proved that we're one new humanity because what we see in the church, even our church, is that we have people from different nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, all together as one. And the rest of the world should look at that and say, why are you one? Why does that make sense? How can it be that all of us exist together? And we have the answer. It's because of the Lord. It's because of the gospel. It's because the gospel unites us all together into one body. That's why we're here. That's why tongues don't matter anymore because the church itself is the testimony of the power of the gospel. Additionally, this is a great time for all of us to consider our relationship with Christ and his church. One of my professors, as he was teaching on this text, he posed these questions. If you really claim the name of Christ and you really believe that the Bible is true, where is your vision in regards to the church? Is it important to you? Is it an important part of your life? Because if you do not see the importance of the church, what are we doing here? Why are we here? Not only that, but why do we even call ourselves Christians? You see, together as a church, we make a difference. And this isn't one of those things where it's like, hey, let's get together and make a difference because as long as we get together and do something, we'll accomplish something in the world. No, it's not that. God is the one who builds his church. He is the one who makes a difference through the church. So it's not necessarily dependent upon us. We have to have a better understanding of church, of what we're a part of, because church is not something that we just do on Sunday. Right? It's not just something that we come to on Sunday or maybe even you know, Wednesday or Friday. Right? But it is where God executes history-changing plans. If we really believe what God has said about his church, then we will invest everything that we have into the church. And I'm not talking, by the way, just about your money. Okay? I could care less about the money. It is a visible way that we demonstrate our unity within the church, but what I'm talking about is how we, as a church family, as Christians who gather together, we build into the church, right? We invest in the church with our lives and with one another because we know that this is the place, this is the institution that God has ordained to proclaim his glories to one another and to the world. We're proclaiming 
his great name. We're proclaiming his great power to save. And so when we serve in the church in any small way that we can, we do so because we demonstrate that we understand what this is all about. And that's the beauty of the church. Our ministries are not about us. They're not about us. Right? We could die tomorrow and someone will take our place. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the church administrator. It's not about any of these things. We could die tomorrow and someone else will take our place. Right? But what our ministries are all about, from nursery all the way up to, to our senior citizen ministries, to our, widow, to our ministry to widows, all of these ministries, they are aimed to proclaim loudly to one another that we have hope because of Jesus Christ. We have hope because of Jesus Christ. And so we give towards ministry. We give towards missions, not just because we're being told to do it or because it's a good thing to do. We do it because we believe in the saving power of the gospel. Because we believe in the saving power of the gospel. Basically, what we say is we believe that God has power to save and that salvation is found in no other name and that God is the one who establishes his church. He grows his kingdom through ministry and missions and that's why I give. There's a completely different understanding of giving. We're not saying give just so that we can keep the lights on. We're saying give because you believe that God is doing something. Give because you understand that what God started to bring in, he will continue to do. The church, when unified and acting together in faith and courage, it's a great form of witness, all because Christ died and rose. His Holy Spirit comes to continue that work here until Christ returns, and he is the one who advances the gospel to the rest of the world. And this type of gospel witness through the church leads us to our third scene that explains the significance of God's promise to the church. Intermission. We've seen the promise fulfilled. We've seen the promise explained. Now we see the promise manifested. You know, normally, we're in verse 37. Normally, when preachers preach, they don't see the effects of their messages for quite a while. But the Holy Spirit demonstrates that he's behind Peter and the early church by giving an immediate response to Peter's sermon. The people... They heard Peter's message, and it says here that they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? This is the kind of response that we normally hope for, right? When we, when we share the gospel to other people. We would hope that when they hear us share the gospel, that they would say, What should I do? What can I do to be saved? That's what we hope to see. And that's what the people ask because of the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts. The Holy Spirit convicts these Jewish people of their sins and their need for the gospel. And so they ask, what can we do? What should we do? And Peter responds, repent. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people have looked at this text, and they've interpreted what Peter says here as the as saying that the way that people are saved is through repentance and baptism. But this is not the case. Because if salvation was dependent upon baptism, then salvation would be based off of works, not grace. But you can't let your theology or my words be the determining factor in terms of how to interpret this text. So how do we understand 
Peter's call for repentance and baptism here when it seems like, on the surface, that he's saying that you're saved by repentance and baptism? Well, first we look at the grammar. What you see here, even in the English, is that the grammar starts to shift. Peter's command to repent is addressed to the crowd in general. Second person plural. You all repent. But then he shifts it a little bit. He shifts it and he says, and each of you, third person singular, each of you be baptized. So he's focusing on individuals within the crowd. And then he goes out, he switches again, and he says, and he switches again to second person plural, and he says, you all will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what you see here, even with the grammar, is that baptism is not on the same level as this call to repent. He switches to the third person in order to show what each individual must do in order to be identified with the crowd, with all of them. If each person is going to show that they have repented of their sins, they are to be baptized. And that's why we encourage people to get baptized here at this church. Not just because Jesus said so, but because being baptized shows that you've identified yourself with Christ. And this is Peter's point of emphasis. And, and, and we can see that this is his point of emphasis because when you shift over, even just one chapter over to Acts 3, Peter, he calls on the people to repent. And naturally, the Bible study side of you should be asking or should be thinking, oh, he's saying repent, so I'm expecting the word be baptized. But he doesn't say that in Acts 3. In Acts 3, he says, repent and return to the Lord. It's completely different, right? So if Peter meant to say that baptism saves you, in Acts 3, when we look at it, he shouldn't be saying repent and return. He should be saying repent and be baptized. But he doesn't say that. And, he, and Paul doesn't say that either in the rest of the book. Notice, when Peter is speaking with the Jews in regards to what was done to Jesus historically, he lays the responsibility of Jesus' crucifixion on them collectively. Look at verse 23. It says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you all nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Going down to verse 36. After he talks about who Christ is, and that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Peter says, this Jesus whom you all crucified. So the idea Peter is trying to drive home here is that if you all repent and eventually receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, then you must show yourself distinct from the crowd, distinct from the ones who gathered to crucify Jesus by repenting from your old thoughts about Jesus, that he is not God and become identified with Christ rather than remaining with those who opposed him. And we can see that these are not the only words that Peter says to the people, as it says in verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Again, that's second person plural. You all be saved from this perverse generation. Peter's point here is turn around, change your thinking about Christ, and be a part of the church since they have access, since we have access to the blessings that will only come to you through him. Forgiveness of sin only comes to you through him. So repent 
and go to Jesus and be baptized to show that you identify with him rather than the Jews who hated him. And the fact that, and the response that we see in verse 41 tells us that the Holy Spirit really was working in those Jewish people who were listening to Peter preach. Verse 41 says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. These people, they heard Peter's gospel message. They believed it. And in response, they got baptized, 3,000 of them. That's probably a long baptism service, but, you know, it's a good one because it shows that they believed. It shows that they identified with Christ rather than with the rest of the Jews. And God, he demonstrates the significance of Peter's sermon, not just by the response, but by the sheer number of people who responded. Right? Think about this. We had the church starting with the 11. We'll bump up to 120 in Acts 1. And now here in Acts 2, we have a church of over 3,000 a church over 3,000. God demonstrates very clearly that he is the causing the change. He is causing the growth, and those results don't go unnoticed by Jerusalem. But God is the one who grows this church. He shows by building this church that he is behind it, that there's actually saving power in the name of Jesus Christ. And that saving power is evident in the way that the people respond after that they're saved. Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Simple belief in Jesus is not where the train stops, brothers and sisters. But what the people show by continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching is that you need to continue to learn more about what you say you believe, what you understand, what you believe, all of that. It drives the way that you respond to the truth. It drives the way that you go about your life. The early church showed that they understood this in that they were together and they functioned as a witness together of all that Jesus began to do and teach through fellowship. Through fellowship. They demonstrated that they understood why they were there by going to fellowship. Now, the word for fellowship is that familiar word that we know. It's koinonia. But this word doesn't necessarily mean that we just hang out or go to lunch at times. It could include that, but it doesn't necessarily just mean those things. Right? Fellowship is something more. It's something more. It refers to partnership. It's a joint effort with everyone joining together to do something that has meaning to do something that has meaning. For example, when we talk about our church's day camp, this is an example of how our church fellowships together. Even if you can't be there all week to minister to these kids, if you help out with decorations, if you help out with bringing food, or if you help out by passing out flowers or letting other people know that day camp is happening, you are partaking together with the rest of the church in this ministry designed to reach out to the community, to tell these kids and their parents about the good news of the gospel and the fact that there is hope for salvation of sins in Jesus Christ. We do that together as a church. We partner together as a church to do that. We partner to do something worthwhile. 
when you broaden that out a little bit, when you talk about our ministries on, on, um, in the middle of the week, right? even if you're tired and you're busy, we understand that, which is why we don't say that you have to be at fellowship, right? because we're not legalistic in that way, but we highly encourage you to be at fellowship because, outside of Sunday morning because fellowship is something that we as a church, we do together in order to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. Christ and to encourage one another to continue to pursue righteousness. I know that it can be difficult to make time for fellowship because we have busy lives, right? And sometimes fellowship ends really, really late. But what we see here is that the early church, they understood why being committed to fellowship was important. They understood that it meant something. It was a partnering together not just to study the Bible, although that's definitely important, but it's a way that we demonstrate to the world our desire to be unified with our brothers and sisters because of all that Christ did. And that's why it's a commitment to come to church. It's a commitment to come and have fellowship. Which is why in Hebrews 10, we're told not to forsake meeting up together. Right? It tells our brothers and sisters, hey, we, now I love you. Right? That we love them. We want for them to join with us in the worship of God through our various seasons of life. And so when, time is, when, when, the, when the times are hard, when you're frustrated, when you're discouraged, you go to fellowship, not just because you want an emotional pickup, but because you understand that God has provided the church to lift us up, to remind us of the truth, to remind us of the hope that is found in the gospel, and that just because it hurts now doesn't mean that it has to stay that way. It won't stay that way because God has hope has given us hope in the gospel. And that's what we hold out to one another. That's what we hold out to the world. But that's why fellowship is so important. That's why fellowship is so important. That's why we can't ignore it. Now, we partake in fellowship also in the breaking of bread, otherwise known as communion. When we fellowship together as a church and observe communion, we're not just eating matzo crackers and drinking grape juice just for the fun of it. We proclaim to one another that Christ actually died for sins, that he rose again and he's coming back. There is hope that Christ will return again and that he'll bring us home to the Lord in glory, and we remind ourselves of this every single time we take communion. We remind ourselves, we remind each other that the saving power of Christ is real, that it actually does something. That's what we're showing each other. It actually does something. But not only that, we take communion, yes, but then we also pray. We also pray. Right? The saving power of Christ is real, and devoting ourselves to teaching and fellowship is good because it informs our minds about Jesus Christ. And it reforms our minds about all that God has done in order to give us everything pertaining to life and godliness. But that leads us to prayer. We pray in response to teaching, in response to fellowship, because we're joining in with other believers as we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We're praying to worship God and to thank him for all that he's done. We're praying because we understand that God is the one who builds his church. And like we saw last week with the apostles, belief in what God reveals leads to action. And we see that in the life of the early church. 
that belief in Christ and belief in what the apostles were teaching led the church to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And as a result of this new reality that changes the lives of, these three, of this 3,000-plus member congregation, this congregation together functions as a witness outside the church and inside the church. We see that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, verse 43. They, they felt a sense of fear, of healthy reverence towards the Lord. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. At this time in church history, the apostles continued to do signs in order to get the rest of the world to continue to ask the question, what is God doing here? And they receive their answer when they look at the church. Because what they see is the church unified, being together, sharing things with one another, day by day, continuing worship in the temple, taking communion, sharing meals together, and worshiping God. Now, some people, they look at this and they say, oh, it looks like this is a justification for communist living. We should do that. But that's not what this is. This is a demonstration that the church partners together to be a witness. The poor are not rejecting the rich. The rich are not rejecting the poor. Everything is being shared with, amongst each other according to need. It's not saying that everyone shares because they're entitled to equity. But it shows that we have partnership. We are generous with one another because we are one body, unified in Christ. So when you hurt, I'm generous to show you the care that the body of Christ ought to have. We're not sharing wealth. We're partnering together. And the rest of the city of Jerusalem notices that the church is different from anything that they've ever seen before because we see in verse 47 that as the church was praising God, they were having favor with all the people. They were having favor with all the people. It's not that the people of the city of Jerusalem were just saying, were looking at the church and saying, like, oh, they're nice. But it's that they were looking at that and they were saying, wow, look what God is doing there. Look what God is doing there. And the fact that they had such a tremendous witness is evidence in the fact that at the end of verse 47, that last sentence, it says, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. These people, they recognized the witness that the church had. They believed the message, and that's why the Lord was continuing to grow the church day by day. The church does not represent a new humanity because we have a social agenda that can change the world. But it's because Christ's death and resurrection changes everything. It changes the facts on the ground. Salvation, the forgiveness of sins, is available to every man, woman, and child of every nation, every ethnicity, every social status. All because of Christ. And that is the hope that we hold out to the rest of the world. This is the news, this is the good news that we remind ourselves of on a daily basis. This is the good news that motivates us and drives us out to have a concern for our neighbors and for the nations. And it's all because of Christ. Right? It's all for Christ and through Christ. We are nothing without him. We can do nothing without him. It's all for him and through him. When life changes around us, we have no choice but to respond to those changes. When the facts on the ground change, we have to change with it. And 
when the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles and the gospel began to spread in Jerusalem through the early church, the saving power of the name of Jesus Christ changed the facts on the, grounds, on the ground forever. And this morning, we observed that. We saw three scenes that explained the significance of God's promise to the church and to her mission. We saw how the promise of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled, explained, and manifested. The coming of the Holy Spirit places the church firmly in those last days, in the latter days. And the Holy Spirit changes our hearts that we might respond to the good news of the gospel so that we could have our sins forgiven and so that the blessings that God has promised from the very beginning, they could start coming. They can start coming about. And therefore, we point together to the reality that the end is in view. That's what we do together as a church. The finish line is on the horizon. And as a result, we gather together to make known the fact that repentance of sin is possible. There is a way back to Eden. And so we appeal to the world to repent of their sins, to be baptized, to follow after Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as those who have repented of our sins and been given the hope of the Holy Spirit, let us remember that these gifts that we've been given by the Lord in our salvation change everything. We are a new humanity in Christ. We tell this to the world. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for this gift of the church, for what it stands for, for how we're not just a building on a street corner that just does nice things, but we stand out there with the rest of our brothers and sisters, with all the other churches in the world as beacons of hope, beacons of hope, that forgiveness is possible. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to change our minds about the church. Help us to see how significant it is in your salvation plan. Let us partner together in order to bring you great glory and great honor as we tell the world all that you've done. Help us not to get caught up in number of conversions, but help us to remember that all that you ask for us is to be faithful. Help us to be faithful in this mission, we pray. In the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, thank you so much for your attention. Uh, have a blessed Sunday and a great week, and we'll see you this Friday for Good Friday service at 7.30. Have a blessed week.